Hey. Hey, are you here? I can't hear you, but <laughs> I think you are here. So let's get the show going. The Paul Leslie Hour. Hey, you know, Paul McCartney's just about to turn 80 years old. But age, that's just a number, especially when it comes to a rock and roll legend. Well, we've got an interview with a very cool character. This was recorded in the hotel room of Brian Ray. Now, some of you may remember that he was interviewed by Paul Leslie before. Brian Ray is an unbelievable musician. He plays lead and rhythm guitar and sometimes bass for Paul McCartney. His association with Paul McCartney began with a performance with Paul McCartney at the halftime ceremonies at NFL Super Bowl 39 in 2002. And Brian's been in the band ever since. He appeared on some of the Paul McCartney studio and live albums. Now, Brian Ray has worked with countless artists, including the late folk and songwriting legend Steve Goodman and many other greats like Etta James, Smokey Robinson, Rita Coolidge, and French superstar Johnny Halliday. However, what makes Brian Ray so unique is his incredible songs. In 2006, he released his debut album, Mondo Magneto, and he followed this with his sophomore release, This Way Up, in 2010. Brian Ray joined the Paul Leslie Hour to talk all about his illustrious musical career. Hey, can you help keep this content coming? Mm-hmm. Just visit www.thepaulleslie.com support. And we thank everyone for contributing and listening. Hey, let's get this show with Brian Ray to the here. And now, let's go. Our special guest is recording artist, singer, songwriter, guitarist, Brian Ray. A lot of you may also know him as the guitarist in Paul McCartney's band. So first of all, Thank you so much for coming on the show, not once, but a second time. Hey, Paul, it's great to see you. Thanks for having me back, man. It is absolutely a pleasure. Who is Brian Ray? Um, let me go make some calls, and I'll see if I can find out for you. No. Who is Brian Ray? Brian Ray is a guy who was born and raised in the West Coast in Southern California, Glendale, California, otherwise known as the Gateway to Burbank. In the mid-50s. So I'm a guy who's in his early 50s who somehow got lucky enough to recognize and to um, adore rock and roll when rock and roll was brand new, you know. I had an older sister, 15 years older than me, a half-sister, who turned me on to Elvis Presley when she was a senior in high school and I was three. Elvis, Little Richard... You know, the Everly Brothers, Rick Nelson, and started playing these records for me and showing me their pictures as she uh, babysat me with her girlfriends. And so girlfriends were like screaming and giggling over these pictures. And I just said, oh, my God, well, that's where the action is. Even at three years old, I knew it just fired me up. Rock and roll fired me up. And I'm just glad that I was there with the 
uh, original progenitors of rock and roll and got excited about it, fell in love with music and R&B, surf music, early Motown. Um, but I was really a big fan of R&B and black music. There was a pirate radio station being uh, broadcast out of Tijuana, California with more wattage than was legal anywhere else. That's why it was a pirate radio station. And they played nothing but blues and R&B. And as a five-year-old kid, I would be under my covers at night like, listening to XERB and the Wolfman Jack. Mm-hmm. You know, that's where he got his start. And uh, so I'm just a kid, a uh, little white kid from Glendale who had a fever for rock and roll and black music at a very early age and somehow was lucky enough to find a way to do this for a living and is still fortunate enough to be able to do this uh, and be paid for it. And who, other than that, also has a, a life that's enjoyable and, you know, worth living. That's, uh, you know, that's, I guess that's me in a nutshell. Sounds like a long, strange trip, but here we are today. Yeah. Can you remember the time in your life when you realized not only am I a music fan, but I am a musician? Yes. Uh, you know, again, my sister played a role in, in that sort of awakening. And that was, uh, a day that she took me to a rehearsal of hers, and there were all these well-known musicians of the time. And this was probably, this was 1969 or something like that. And there was Harvey Brooks from the Electric Flag on bass, and there was Greg Thomas from some other big band, and there was um, Dave Mason, and they were jamming, and they were starting to put together a sort of supergroup. And uh, Gene took me to see that, and they were on a break. And I picked up, or Dave Mason handed me his Telecaster, and I was 14 years old, and I started playing it. And they were out of the room, and they all started coming back in the room, and they were, like, looking through the window and, like, pointing at me, going, this kid can play. And, you know, before that, I was just a kind of, like, play-in-my-own-room kind of guy. And I think that was a moment where I went, oh, my God, yeah, I starting to arrive, aren't I? You know, so I guess that was an encouraging moment. Can you remember the first time that you played and it was a gig? Yes, I can. I flash back to a funny little club. It was a little bar right by the Santa Monica Pier in Santa Monica, California, right on the boardwalk, right under the pier. And I think it's like, a, it's still a bar, I believe. And that was my first professional gig where I was being paid uh, to do a show. And my next ones after that were with my sister Jean um, playing, what was it called? It was called a Hootenanny Night at the Troubadour on stage at Los Angeles Troubadour. So, yeah, just wow, good times, you know? Yeah. Well, maybe you could tell all the listeners out there about your first gig with Sir Paul McCartney. Wow, my first gig with Sir Paul McCartney was also my audition for Paul. And it's the wackiest thing in the world, you think, and an audition would be, you know, just a couple people in a room. Well, my audition was the Super Bowl 2002 <laughs> to play one song, a song called Freedom, you might have heard of, at the Super Bowl 2002, right before the National Anthem. 
And uh, you want a little background on how I got to that day? I, I don't know if I told this story before to you, but I'd been working with my next-door neighbor here, Abe Laboreal Jr., while we were touring with some French acts in all around France with uh, Johnny Halliday, who's the French Elvis, and Mylène Farmer, who's sort of the French Madonna, if you will. And we both had these... Uh, these tours back to back to back to back over there with these two different artists. And so Abe and I became best friends. Uh, Abe left those bands to do something else. And one day called me and said, guess what I'm doing now? And I said, what? He says, I'm doing Paul McCartney's new record. And I went, no way. And uh, I said, well, don't wash your hand. I just can't wait to shake your hand. And anyway, so, you know, like a typical, any guy that, you know, was there when the Beatles arrived, you know, it's kind of a big deal anyway. So, Abe was, you know, a month later, he was at a birthday party of mine. And I said, so are you going to tour with McCartney? He goes, yeah, we are in just a couple of months. And I said, well, so I know Rusty's on the other guitar and and Wix is playing keyboards and you're on drums. Who's going to play bass when Paul goes to guitar or when Paul goes to piano? And who's going to play guitar when he's on bass? And he goes, well, we're looking for a guitar player who plays bass. And I literally put my right hand up and said, I'd love a shot at that. And uh, Abe put my name forward to Paul's producer, David Kahn. David Kahn called me a few days later, asked for a meeting with me where he just put a guitar in my lap and a bass in my lap and just talked to me. And we talked about music. And uh, David Kahn said, hey, after 40 minutes, I have a great feeling about this. This was really good. You know, Paul's a vibe guy. I'll put your name forward. I don't know what'll happen, but, you know, we'll give it a shot. And I went, okay, thanks, and went about my stuff. Got a call the next day. Brian, can you be on an airplane to come to New Orleans tomorrow to play the Super Bowl with Paul McCartney? And I'm like, oh, my God. I was just shaking. <laughs> so I got to New Orleans. I left the next day. I got to New Orleans. I swear to God, I walked around the town for like four hours straight just to burn off some of my excess energy because I was just way too nervous to like talk. I would be like, that's what I would have said. <laughs> so I thought if I just walked all day, maybe I'd calm down. It, of course, didn't work at all. You know, I <laughs> we had a, a private dinner uh, at the hotel with him later that night, and uh, he was very gracious and really nice. And the next day, we uh, we had our sound check. And before you knew it, I had played one song with Paul McCartney for the Super Bowl for 77,000 people and the millions of home viewers at 2002 Super Bowl. And it was just surreal. You know, we were in a skybox after we did our pre-show song. And he's introducing me to all the celebrities that are coming in to meet him. And, and Paul says to Winona, right, he says to Winona, I'm sorry, the artist Winona, he says, yeah, Brian's new. You know, we, we've just met him. He's just come aboard. And and I go, yeah, this is this is my audition, a nice little uh, intimate audition. <laughs> but yeah, that was my first time. And as far as I knew, that was going to be it. You know, just I was super grateful. I mean, you know, one song, I thought that'd do it. Well, we come back to the hotel after that. And Paul's down in the, the bar and we're telling stories. And then finally, Paul gets up to go to sleep and he comes over and he goes, Okay, good night, guys. He gives me a hug. He says, well, welcome aboard, Brian. Stick with Abe. They'll show you the ropes. You know, and I couldn't believe it because I just played one song. And I'd already said goodbye and thank you to him. And uh, he had this other idea that maybe I should stick around. So I ran home 
and got a bass and got, you know, the, the correct bass. I had a bass, but I got another bass. I got an acoustic guitar, a 12 string, put them on stands, got a stack of CDs, standing up, microphone, second bedroom. I went full Ted Kaczynski, stayed indoors for about five weeks straight, just woodshedding all of his material. Just, And then uh, had our first day of of real rehearsal five weeks later. And at the end of the day, he said, okay, guys, sounds great. See you tomorrow. So it wasn't until that moment that I thought, oh, my God, I'm going on tour with Paul McCartney. Now it's seven years later. You know, what a great story. It's, it's insane. I don't <laughs> it's know how almost, that happens. Yeah. Again, just a, a little white kid from Glendale. I mean, I don't know why that happened, but uh, there you go. I was hoping you could tell all the listeners out there about your new record. My new record? Well, thanks. Yeah. Um, this is a follow-up to my um, 06 release called Mondo Magneto on my own little label called Hooray Records. The new one is called This Way Up. I'm about 60% done with it, I think, right now. And uh, these songs are a newer collection, all written around the same period of time over the last year and a half or so, whereas Mondo Magneto was made up largely of songs that I already had, you know, in my back pocket that just needed to be rewritten or, you know, the lyrics needed to be redone or this or that. Uh, th these are all brand new songs. So it, it might be a more cohesive group of songs in a way, but... Still uh, a lot of diversity, I guess, for, for me. But it's hard to know when you talk about your own material. You don't know what to say, really. But um, it's uh, up-tempo, and the, and, and, the, and the title of the album, This Way Up, really is, that's the stamp that you see on packages in England. Instead of this side up, it says this way up. And I thought, at this point, maybe we could all use uh, a little something to tell us which way up, you know. And so that's what it's about. It's a little bit uplifting, a little funny, uh, some other personal songs on there as well, as I did before I'm on the Magneto. But, uh, you know, we'll see how it does. You know, it's a, it's just fun. It's just I write because I have to. These songs just have to, have to find their way out somewhere, you know. Well, there's two songs from that album that you're going to play for all of the listeners out there. The first one I was hoping you could tell us about, it's called I Found You. Yeah, you know, uh, it's sort of an up-tempo rocker, uh, kind of a British invasion kind of shuffle, you know, one of those English shuffles. And it actually started off as a straight eighth note rocker. I brought it into the studio, and on drums is Pete Thomas from Elvis Costello's band and Davey Farragher from Elvis Costello's band, and Adam McDougall on keyboards playing these fantastic, trippy keyboard parts where he plays an old Wurlitzer, and then he puts a, a stomp box on top like a guitar delay or phasers or flangers. And while he's playing the keyboards with his right hand, he's playing with the flangers and the delays with his left hand, making these crazy sounds. Anyway, so I start playing the song, and we're having a hard time getting the feel right for this eighth note rocker. And Davy Farragher says, I tell you what, what if it was more like this? And he started going, he says, because that's Pete Thomas's sort of meat and potatoes favorite beat in the world. And we had it in one take. It was unbelievable. It was just like so easy. You know, so the song is, um, it's sort of about, you know, ever since I was a kid, I was always sort of searching and seeking and trying to better myself and 
whether it was spiritually or through uh, substances. I was uh, experimenting and trying to improve and I guess, you know, looking for something more, something more than just this day-to-day human condition, you know. I think the song is, uh, the verses talk about all the ways which I I tried looking before and uh, none of them really paid off till I found you. And and it's obviously a, a, a romantic kind of idea, you know, finding the right person. When actual fact, it's also about finding meditation. Because I started meditating about three years ago. That was the solution and, and the thing that finally sort of made it all work, you know. So, um, fantastic new addition to my life. Yeah. Well, let's hear it. Performing his song, I Found You, that was Brian Ray here on the Paul Leslie Hour. Now we'd like to take you back to our interview with recording artist, singer-songwriter, and guitarist and sometime bassist with Paul McCartney, our special guest, Brian Ray. When someone listens to the new record, or they see you in concert, what do you want them to get out of the experience of listening? You know, these days, as an independent artist, I'm not really doing this being my own stuff, my solo stuff to, to get rich because the record business, as you might've heard has changed a little bit. So, but I'm doing this because I I have to write songs. There's, it's just ever since I was a kid, uh, I, I wanted to write songs, you know, and I did write songs. I wanted to write lyrics and melodies and, and just for me, it's, it's one of the most satisfying things in the world. So if anything, I would want people just to share some joy, um, get into some of the melodies or some of the things that I did, you know, um, get into the guitar parts and the hooks that I hear because hook oriented, I like things that just stick in your mind, whether it's a guitar part or a, a melody. So it, when I get letters and emails from kids that are younger, like 16, 15, 17-year-old aspiring guitarists who found me somehow and are huge fans, that means everything to me. You know, it's really about that. I've got stacks of emails from kids who are just big fans. And it's like, if I can inspire other kids to say yes and to show up and to show up even when they don't think opportunity is right for them and just say yes because it might to lead to another opportunity that is right for them uh, and take that leap of faith and believe in themselves. If I can do that just a little bit, then that would make me feel great. You know, I'm embarrassed that I didn't ask this the last time, but I was listening to the show and I didn't ask you who your biggest influences are. Well, you know, as I was saying before, the the earliest uh, rockers, uh, the Beatles, uh, the Stones, the Kinks, uh, the Who, and but on a guitar level, like as I was learning my craft to play guitar, it was about Albert King, Albert Collins, all these great black blues players. You know, um, I was into. Uh, Peter Green, uh, Jeff Beck, Jimi Hendrix, Eric Clapton, all the sort of guys that you would sort of expect uh, 
from a sort of classic rock, British invasion, blues rock guitar standpoint. Those are the guys that uh, that I cut my teeth on that I really loved the most. One thing I did ask you was what you had been listening to, and you turned me on to Madeline Peru. Oh, yeah. So I was wondering, what have you been listening to lately? Oh, uh, I, I'm really loving an artist named Ray LaMontagne. I, I don't know if you've heard of him. Oh, yeah. But he's just a fantastic sort of rootsy, uh, more of an acoustic songwriter guy who who writes in this sort of, God, I wonder, I guess he's like a modern day Cat Stevens or something like that, but a little less of the child music that Cat Stevens was so good at. You know how his songs sort of sound like you might hear him on Sesame Street or something like that. Right. Whereas uh, Ray LaMontagne is a little bit more uh, mature and up-to-date lyrically. But his voice sounds like Otis Redding. And so, since I've always been a fan of great rhythm and blues singers, um, like the great Etta James that I worked with for so long, and, and guys like Otis Redding and Wilson Pickett and all those guys, that's why I like Ray LaMontagne. He's got this soul voice. Last time we got to hear about your experiences with Etta James. So this time I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about your uh, experiences with Smokey Robinson. Oh, Smokey, right. Got it. Um, well, did I tell you about the the writing of the song that I did with him and how that happened? We didn't get to touch on it. Okay. Well, one more time, this is one of those, you know, uh, just say yes moments where I had turned most of my attention to songwriting. And I had a songwriting partner, a great guy named Steve Legasic, who I still write with. Got a song with him on my new record. And this is 1986, and we're writing away, and I'm trying to sort of get off of the road and turn my attention to songwriting. And um, we had a bunch of very mediocre songs. <laughs> and then I heard that my friends were producing Smokey Robinson's new record. So I called my friends who were producing it and said, could Steve and I submit a song? And they said, you know, don't bother because Smokey's such a great writer. You know, we've got tons of songs. We, we don't need them. So I told my partner, Steve, ah, you know, they don't want to hear our songs. And I was just all bummed and discouraged. And, and Steve said, well, let's do it anyway. And I said, yeah, let's do it anyway. So I had this title, One Heartbeat, you know, let's take it one heartbeat at a time. Forget about a day at a time. Let's just take it one heartbeat at a time. And uh, and Steve started playing with some chords that were sort of reminiscent of uh, Smokey's great song, Tracks of My Tears, you know, in that vein. And, you know, our goal was just to write something that we thought Smokey might write himself or would certainly be comfortable singing. And as a, a comedian writes, a, a comedic writer writes for a comedian or as a screenwriter writes for, you know, a dramatic actor, you kind of know what these people will and won't do because they've created a body of work. Same with Smokey. He's a romantic guy. He likes very simple, sort of poetic, sweet things that are a little different than you expect it. So we really examined line by line to try to tailor it for him. We finished the song in two weeks with a demo. We turned it into the producers, even though they had told us not to, on a Friday. Steve and I went out of town, went to uh, up with his parents at a cabin up in uh, by a lake, came back Sunday night, and there was a message on our machine, 
What a great song. Smokey loves this song. We're cutting it Thursday. Come to Conway, 32-track digital. We're doing it just like your demo. Bring all your gear. You get arrangement as well. And so that Thursday, we recorded Smokey Robinson's song, When Heartbeat. He did a great vocal on it. They decided it should be the single. It was a giant record for him. And then he titled the album When Heartbeat as well on Motown Records, uh, 1987, I guess it was. And now it's over 3 million airplays on that song. Nice. Yeah. So, And I'm still in touch with him. I just got a text saying uh, Smokey wanted to see if Paul was available to sing with him in London for an upcoming show and do a little duet or something like that. So we're still in touch. There's another song on the album. It's called Very Happy Song. I was hoping you could tell us about that one. <laughs> Very Happy Song. Okay, well... My my web gal, who, who's been so great to help me with uh, my website, uh, brianray.com. Clever title, isn't that? Really. It I mean, works. Think about that. Brianray.com. How did he do it? <laughs> well, she uh, she one day said to me after, Hooray, uh, after the Hooray Records release of Mondo Magneto, she said, well... I, you know, I'm your biggest fan. I love this stuff. This sounds so cool. I, I sing it and I play it in my car and I'm, you know, I'm so into it. She says, but I just recognize something. She said, even the songs that sound happy on your, on your album are actually sad lyrically. She said, so what's up with that? Can, why don't you write something happy? And I said, I hate happy music. I hate happy art. Happy art sucks. <laughs> I mean, who has anything valid to say that's happy all the time? Come on. You know, think of the great artists. They were all tortured and and dramatic and pathetic. <laughs> I said, that's more my speed. Great art doesn't come out of happiness. And I had this long thing with her. And But, you know, as things do, it kind of sat in the back of my mind. And I thought about it. And I thought, there's got to be a way to write a happier song. And then... I just couldn't help myself. I wrote a depressing song <laughs> in in the, a very depressing song inside a happy song. And that's what a very happy song is all about. Uh, very good. Let's hear it. Our special guest is singer, songwriter, and guitarist Brian Ray. Few people can say that they have done some of the things that you've done, especially when you're playing in front of multitudes of people. So through the eyes of Brian Ray... What is it like when you're on stage and you look out at a sea of people when you're playing the guitar? Wow. Well, for me, it, it just, it's an exhilarating, very satisfying, uh, amazing experience where, and I don't take it for granted. I look out there and, and, you know, face it, it's really because of Paul's incredible popularity and his graciousness and in, in his personality that he has such a giant audience that reacts the way they react but for us it's a show to watch the faces and to watch the people move it's like it's unbelievable we we see these people just melt they they grow younger song by song they're they're crying they're screaming you know it's, it's fantastic and the audiences are getting younger and younger and younger as his music is sort of past another generation and these kids have discovered the Beatles and Paul McCartney's solo stuff and wings. And, you know, for me, I guess to get to your question, it's just like, 
I am doing the exact thing that I wanted to do when I was three years old in my sister's room while she was playing the Elvis Presley records, you know, and, and I get to get paid for it. It's like somebody <laughs> slapped me. I can't even believe this, but, uh, you know, I just feel like I'm living sort of a, uh, a dream and, uh, I just am very grateful that it's continued on for this long. My plan was that we'd, uh, you know, I'd get this kind of success by the time I was 22. You know, that's what I thought was going to happen. You know, but uh, I had a few things to straighten out. I had to stop doing, you know, drugs and drinking the kind of drugs that would make me hallucinate that I should have all this by 22. I think <laughs> I needed to just calm down. So what if it happened when I was 48, you know? Well, you just mentioned dreams, and that was going to be my next question. You're a man that's – you've clearly lived your dreams. Mm. What is a dream that maybe has not happened yet, but you're working on making it happen? I would say having a kid would be a really great dream. You know, after all this time, I've had quite enough of me, you know. And, you know, it is a strange business. It's a strange role to play. And um, I've been very fortunate to have the career that I've built. It's crazy when I look back at it. Um, and I'm lucky it's still growing. You know, I still really love, I'm passionate about music. I'm passionate about playing live. And I'm still passionate about um, writing and doing my own record. But somewhere along the way, I forgot to have a family. You know, I was so busy getting all the foundation and the groundwork done so a family could fit in there. But I... Forgot to add the family. So, you know, um, I'm seeing someone I'm really fond of, and maybe that's, uh, maybe that's something that could happen. What is it you like about music? Nothing. I hate that stuff. Do you like that? You like music? Oh, of course. <laughs> music. Well, you know, I guess ever since I was a little kid, um, it was my first drug. So I, I liked escaping. Um, and music offered a, a great escape, you know, as good as any Steve McQueen, you know, escape. It was a great escape. It opened a world in three minutes, uh, like a book does in a week, you know, in three minutes, you have a, a sort of a film for the ears. And I always close my eyes and listen to music and I would make up scenes and characters and instruments would be you know expressions of the lyrics you know i always saw music in a almost visual way so for me it's always been an escape after having had the chance to talk to a couple of the members of this band abe laboriel jr rusty anderson and then shortly wicks wickens Don't what do me. these people mean to you i've never met them <laughs> i have no idea did they say they know me? They, they, they seem to have met you. Okay. Well, I will get that straight, but not ringing a bell. No, I'm kidding. So, well, I guess we're lucky, lucky guys because we um, get along really, really well together musically. Now, that part's not that unusual. You know, it's an unspoken communication music. You know, it's a, it's a dialogue. It's... It's a script, you know, that uh, you kind of improvise on every night. And people who don't even care for each other can do that really well and even look like they care for each other. But we're super lucky because we really care for each other. And we hang out way too late all the time, 
uh, you know, going to dinners and doing this and that. Uh, I always have breakfast with Wicks, sometimes dinner with Rusty, and then we all four have dinner together and we laugh our heads off and uh, we're great pals. And I think that comes across on stage. You know, people can see that we're also pals. And Paul, I mean, Paul's such a great hang. And uh, it's really a trickle-down thing. I think in any company, in any business, you know, in any government, who's at the top and how does that filter down to the relationships of everyone under them right down to the audience? And just look what Paul does. Uh, what happens because that guy is the kind of guy he is, open, smart, creative, hilarious, uh, childlike in some ways, um, generous, all of those things filter down. And I think we're recipients of that. Well, you guys get to go all around the world playing this music. What is your favorite place to play? I have to say among my top five have been the second night at Fenway that we just did. New York city is always unbelievable. Um, Mexico city off the hook, France. What a great audience in France, in Paris, the Coliseum in Italy, magical. When we played outside the Coliseum and there were 500,000 lighters in the air, you know, that was pretty stunning. The feedback that you get pouring at you, it's just as loud as the music going at them to us in, in another way. I mean, a loudness in terms of the feeling that you get, a loud feeling of joy and gratitude, you know. Some of the bigger cities, they, they don't show it in that way. They show it in other ways. And then places like Raleigh, Des Moines, um, Omaha, you know, these places that are sort of secondary markets, unbelievable audiences. Yeah. Interesting. Chicago, all great. And I love playing my hometown of L.A. I mean, I have a blast there. What is something about you that most people that are listening may be surprised to know? I have a tail. <laughs> Not many people know that. A fuzzy, long tail. Much like a lion, it has a little puff at the end of it of hair. I keep it in my pants most of the time. Most of the time. It's not allowed. I don't know. That's the main thing. Well, let me ask you this. Of all the songs that you've written, which song to you means the most? Hmm. That's a good question. It's a funny thing that you should say that. I asked that because just this morning I was thinking about a song on my first album, called All I Know. And it was one of the four songs that was written expressly for that record. And it's a song that came out one evening in about 40 minutes, you know, top to tails, lyrics pretty much done, melody done, music done. Boom, there it was, you know. And it was a night I set aside to write a song, you know, so I'd set up the 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 right atmosphere for it at home. You know, I had my cassette recorder, a legal pad, guitar, an electric guitar plugged into a little distorted amp and, and, uh, and this ballad came out and the payoff line and it's, and it's a, it's a love song basically. And it's saying, you know, uh, uh, after all of this stuff, you know, after all that I thought I knew, actually, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know squat. So it's, uh, you know, the, the payoff line is, all I know is I don't know. 
And that was because I uh, had fallen in love with somebody and felt like I was uh, new again, you know, and didn't really know exactly as much as I thought maybe I knew. And it was a humbling and beautiful thing. Of all the songs on Mondo Magneto, that song is my favorite. That's weird. Really? Yep, definitely. Wow. Then there was a connection this morning because it was on my mind this morning. And I haven't really thought about that song much over this period. But yeah, it's definitely it's the most intimate song on the record. And in fact, was written about the woman who I'm seeing again now Hmm. after uh, four years off for bad behavior. she she and I are seeing each other, and she'll be here in a couple hours, as a matter of fact. When it comes to romance, a Valentino and a trucker's hat. Yeah. Yep. I always wondered what that meant. Well, Rudolph Valentino was supposed to be one of the you know great legendary lovers of the stage and screen and life, right? Rudolph Valentino back in the, I guess, 20s was when he was uh, sowing his oats. And so... When it comes to romance, Valentino in a trucker's cap, it just to me was a funny image, like this very suave ladies' man, but he's wearing like a John Deere hat. You know? <laughs> and, and, and I just thought that was a, a, just a, a funny thing. So it's just a, a little visual image. Well, I have two final questions. What is your all-time favorite meal? All-time favorite meal. Wow. Uh, that's hard to put down in in one answer i'll tell you this just about any meal before one of our shows with paul he has the best vegetarian catering on planet earth every night some crazy new treats you've never had before they very seldom ever repeat themselves and it's done with such love and care it's this uh, catering company called eat your heart out and uh, every meal is magnificent. So I, I'd have to go with that. I remember the last time you were on this show, you told all of our listeners to turn off their television sets and go out and vote. Ah, right. This time I'd like to ask you, this show's going out all over the world, thanks to technology. What would you like to say to all the people that are listening in? Keep your televisions off. Because <laughs> <laughs> there's no good news on there. <laughs> no, uh, I would just say uh, stay stay involved, uh, whatever your passion is. Um, in terms of politics, I mean, there, there's um, everybody has their freedom of, of choice in that area. But um, fortunately, that's what makes America so cool. But um, I would just say stay involved and watch for apathy. Be, be vigilant and be passionate about uh, your life and get out there and live it. And I guess I also noticed that everyone's on their iPhones and their Blackberries and their computers, and you'll see a table of six people, and everyone's looking down in their lap at some glowing thing, you know, and uh, it's a Blackberry, you know, or an iPhone. And I think that's kind of bizarre. I remember the first time I noticed in, it was in Australia in 94, a table full of people, and they were all on cell phones, and they hadn't really uh, gotten into the Los Angeles day-to-day to to that degree yet. And I just thought it was such a strange and hilarious thing, you know. I would just hope for a time when we can shut those things off and and talk more again, you know. Interact as people. Yeah. 
Well, Mr. Brian Ray, thank you so much for this interview. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks, man. It's been a total joy. Thanks a lot. What a treat. Thanks. Thank you for stopping by today. If you enjoyed our program, consider telling a friend about it. The Paul Leslie Hour is made possible through people just like you. So you want to keep the show going, right? Go to thepaulleslie.com. That's thepaulleslie.com. Click on Support the Show. And thanks to everyone who contributes. Performance of the intro music is courtesy of John Primerano, the entertainer, written by Scott Joplin. End credit theme music is courtesy of John Primerano, the traditional song, Corina, Corina. Your announcer is Dan Gold. Hey, that's me. The show is hosted and produced by Paul Leslie. And we'll see you next time on the Paul Leslie Hour.